We're taking a break from Mark. Uh, for those of you who need to be refreshed or caught up to where we are or what we're doing, uh, we're doing this uh, kind of a mini-series on, uh, on America, getting America straight with God, how to get America straight with God while we kind of catch our breath after a long stretch of studying the book of Mark. You guys catching your breath and ready to dive back into Mark again? You're going to have to wait. We'll get back into it in about a, about a month, month and a half. We'll get back into Mark. Uh, but for now, we are studying um, book of James, chapter 4, verses 7 to 10. Uh, the passage that we've been studying, you might, uh, I don't know, call this, you might, you might shorten it by calling it uh, the biblical principles of reconciliation with God. As I'm sitting there and, and trying to figure out, you know, how would you summarize this whole passage? That's it. The biblical principles of reconciliation with God. And that applies to individuals, and that applies to nations. We've seen that the book of James, including this passage, was written to believers, it was written to unbelievers, and it was written to people who were kind of straddling the fence, kind of sitting on the fence, not sure which way they're going, uh, one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God. And so with that much said, the contents of James's letter are applicable to absolutely everyone, because everybody fits into a category of either believer or not a believer, even those who are somewhere in between. They are either one or the other. So the question that we began the study with was whether or not God can, maybe we should ask whether God should uh, bless a nation that demands or expects his blessings on their terms rather than on his terms. And of course, the answer for that is no. God will not bless a nation or an individual or anything or anyone on their terms. God's blessings flow from from two things. Number one, they flow from his sovereignty. That means he's in charge. He calls the shots. He's got the right to decide who he's going to bless and who he's not going to bless. But that's very closely tied to our obedience to him. Now, (laughs) uh, if any of you, anybody in here ever tried potty training a child? Like, almost everybody in here has, except those of you who are, like, under 20, 25 or so. Um, You know, if you've ever tried potty training a child, you know that the most effective way of potty training a child is to reward them when they put their potty in the right place, right? (laughs) Okay, so when when Caleb and Maddie were were young and we were uh, potty training them, what we'd do is we'd put a jar of M&Ms in the bathroom and... They want M&M's, right? Well, if you want M&M's, you have to go into the bathroom and put your potty in the right place. Um, and so what we do is, you know, we'd, we'd give them a, a reward for going in the toilet. Now, we all know what would happen, or we can all probably imagine what would happen if you rewarded a child for putting their potty in the middle of the kitchen floor. What do you think would happen? They'd keep doing it, right? Well, that's the same principle that we're talking about here with God's blessings. If God's blessings are going to flow out, it's got to be in the context of obedience rather than doing things that invite his wrath. So what we find here in James chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, are 10 principles of reconciliation with God. Now, just to refresh our memories, the first five, which we covered in the previous two lessons, and by the way, this is the last lesson uh, in in this study. Um, So the first five that we've studied are, number one, to submit to God and to do so willfully. That's what we talked about in the first lesson. And to resist the devil, that's number two. Number one, submit to God. Number two, resist the devil and he will flee. Number three, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Number four, cleanse our hands. And number five, purify our hearts. And what we saw last week is 
that the things that we covered between th numbers 3 and 5 are things that have to be done, no exceptions, they have to be done through Jesus. No other way about it. And it's important just to remember that that's the context of what we're studying today. So James continues by writing here in the first part of James chapter 4, verse 9, Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. So there are three imperative statements here. There are three imperative commands, instructions. The first is to be miserable. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if somebody walks up to me and says, Be miserable! My first instinct is... <laughs> to do the opposite. Isn't that kind of ironic? You know, the, 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 the very thing that it's telling us to stop is the reaction that it elicits. But what we need to understand is that James, what, what is, what's he talking about here? He's talking about the way that people view or react to sin. So his audience either hadn't experienced the conviction of the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of offending God uh, that they should have, or... They had grown casual and calloused in their approach to sin. That's called a seared conscience. It happens. Now, this is the same word, this word, uh, be miserable. It's the same word, you could translate it as lament. Uh, now, in our culture today, we don't use the word uh, lament a whole lot. Um, really, what we would say is regret. It's the same thing. Uh, lament is sorrowful regret. It's not regretting because of consequences, it's regretting the action. That's what James is talking about when he says be miserable or lament. Rather than feeling sorrowful regret over the, the presence of sin in their lives and in the lives of the people they loved, these people that James is writing to here tolerated, or maybe worse, celebrated sin. And once again, man, this could be written just as easily to our country today. Celebrating sin. Celebrating sin. The tolerance is the new gospel. As if, as if, accepting someone's sinful choices, sinful habits, sinful lifestyles is the greatest good. That's the attitude that our culture takes, that accepting someone, including all of their sinful choices, is the greatest good. But I'll tell you right now, it's not. That is not the greatest good. The greatest good is for someone to grow in their likeness to Christ. That is the greatest good. And yet, our society has made encouraging Christ-like holiness, Christ-like righteousness in a person's life the greatest evil. How dare you encourage someone to become like Christ? How dare you judge them, right? And I love it when, when someone quotes from what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you know, here's a surefire way to know when somebody has not studied their Bible, but they've cherry-picked phrases and passages that suit their personal needs while straining out the essence of the message, which is the essence of holiness. So, so they'll say something like, Judge not, lest ye be judged, right? Didn't Jesus say that? Well, aren't you a follower of Jesus? I mean, hey, you know, Jesus did say that, right? He said, judge not let, uh, lest uh, you be judged. Well, he said a little bit more than that, too. He didn't just leave it at that. Uh, what he said was, judge not, or do not judge, so that you will not be judged, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying don't judge. What he's saying here is, if you have a problem with alcoholism that you're unable to boot, 
If you're unable to deal with it, don't go pointing fingers at somebody else who's struggling with alcoholism. If you have a problem with swearing, don't cast judgment on somebody else who has a problem with swearing. If you have a wandering eye, don't cast judgment on somebody else who's struggling with lust. Hopefully you get the point. Jesus' instruction was that if you struggle with the same thing as someone else, address your sin first before you address their sin. And what's the whole point of that? Why should we address our own sin? Not just because we want to be obedient to Christ. That's true, but there's more. The whole point is summarized in what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 5. He says, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. So the whole point in dealing with your own sin is judging is judging correctly. It's so that you can help somebody else break free from the things that you have broken free from. So Jesus is not telling us not to judge there. He's simply telling us don't judge hypocritically, but do judge. He, he, he goes onto that uh, several points in scripture, how to judge. And it's ironic, you know, that tolerance is, uh, is the new fad because the word tolerance uh, if you look it up in the dictionary, tolerance means uh, putting up with something that you disagree with. Uh, so to tolerate something means that you don't like it, uh, but you deal with it. And so, you know, if you don't like it, um, doesn't that necessitate or doesn't that, that imply the fact that you've judged it? Uh, you know, you don't, uh, you don't tolerate people that you want to be around. You know, I don't, I don't tolerate my wife. I, I love being around my wife. But if somebody says I tolerate being around, uh, being around my wife, what they're saying is I can't stand her, but I got you know, to be with her anyway. No, tolerating someone uh, means that you disagree with them or you don't like them. You tolerate people that you would rather not be around. For example, if I say, thanks for tolerating me today. It means, man, this message was really bad, and you guys just sat there and listened to me anyways. It doesn't mean you guys approved of everything I said today, and you guys loved it, right? That's not what tolerance means. That's not what tolerance is. So obviously, American culture, American society has it all backwards. Judge not. Tolerance. Welcome to the generation that can't think beyond a soundbite. So what James is saying here is make sure that you don't get casual about sin. Don't get casual about it. Don't get calloused about it. Don't celebrate it. Offending a holy and righteous God with your actions is never something to celebrate. Never. It's something to lament. It's something to feel sorrowful regret about and feel miserable about because of the conviction that it brings. If deliberate rebellious sin does not cause you to feel sorrowful regret, I can guarantee one thing. You are not seeing that sin the same way that God is seeing that sin. Now, a great illustration of this type of lament or sorrowful regret uh, is found in the story of a man named Zacchaeus. Uh, He hears the gospel, right? And Jesus says, I am coming to your house tonight. And so what what happens to him at that point? They're walking to, to his house, and all of a sudden, man, the weight of conviction is on him. It's, it's enough to crush an elephant. And so Zacchaeus says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. That's from Luke chapter 19, verse 8. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Do you know how many people Zacchaeus defrauded? 
He doesn't know how many people he defrauded. He defrauded scores of people. That's how, that's how tax collectors in that day and age made their living. When he says, if I have defrauded anyone, man, he knows. He's defrauded everyone. He's defrauded absolutely everyone. That's how, that's how they made their living. Can you imagine how immense the sorrowful regret he was feeling at that point. The, the type of regret that instantly forces someone to say, you know what, I'm ready to be financially ruined because of what I've done. I'm, I'm just going to take it. Because it feels better, it would feel better to be financially ruined than it would be to be crushed by the weight of this conviction. That is lament. And what does Jesus say in response to Zacchaeus? He says, today... Salvation has come to this house. Wow. See, James isn't talking about being depressed. He's not talking about being just dissatisfied or despondent. The type of misery or lament or regret that he's talking about isn't based in self-pity. He's talking about the kind of regret, the type of misery that a person should feel upon realizing that their actions have disqualified them, have brought them out of a place where they can receive God's blessings. And this is the reaction of the person who knows that they have offended God, and man, they would do anything to take it all back. They know that they have no other hope of going back to that place where they can receive his blessings without his mercy. That's it. His mercy is their only hope. So that's the first imperative. Lament. Be miserable. Be regretful about sin. The second imperative here is to mourn. He says mourn. This takes lament a step further. It takes the the anguish that you're feeling with conviction when you realize how offensive your sin is. It takes it to the next level. See, when when you lament, it's it's really kind of with your mind. Oh man, I wish I hadn't done that. When you mourn, it's with your heart. It's something that just twists your heart and grips your heart. It's not enough to acknowledge that our sin is sin just on an intellectual level. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I know that I've offended God. So what? You've got to take it to the next level. It's got to come to the level where the conviction penetrates our hearts, which affects our actions, and it brings about mourning. Now, we may not like it, but the road to God's blessings goes right through misery and mourning. goes right through it. We don't like those terms. We don't like the thought of being miserable or, or lamenting. We don't like the thought of mourning. Those are sad terms. We don't like to feel bad, right? We like to be happy. I mean, maybe God doesn't know anything about being politically correct or something. You know, I, I don't know. But mourning, what we need to see here is that misery and mourning are on the road to blessing. They are sources of blessing. Jesus taught, Sermon on the Mount, going back to the Sermon on the Mount here, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. So in light of that same truth, the psalmist, I mean, they, they wrote a lot about mourning. Psalmists, were, I, one thing I love about the psalms is, man, they were just laying it out before God and being brutally honest. If they were mad at God, man, they would, they would lay it all out. I am mad at God. I am disappointed with God. I am mourning And so one of the psalmists writes, you've turned my mourning into dancing. Psalm chapter 30, verse 11. So the reaction of mourning and lamenting is actually something we find 
one other place in the Gospels. Luke tells us that as Jesus was on the road to Calvary, quote, following him was a large crowd of people and women who were mourning and lamenting him. Luke chapter 23, verse 27. Why were they mourning and lamenting him? Because they're about to lose him. And they love him. They worship him. And they're about to lose the thing that they value the most. Do you have that kind of reaction to sin? Where you're mourning and lamenting? That's the question that James wants us to be asking. And if the answer is no, that's okay. Be honest about it. If the answer is no, though, this is a challenge to start right here and right now. Mourn and lament. The third imperative here is weep. Now, weeping is you know, it's just a natural reaction that falls on the heels of lamenting or feeling sorrowful regret and mourning. There was another man, a godly man, who felt the weight of godly conviction upon his heart that caused him to weep. Peter. Peter wept once. On the night when Jesus was taken into custody, Jesus says, hey, guess what, Simon? Peter, you are going to betray me. Not just once, not twice. You're going to betray me three times. And Peter's thinking, I'm not going to betray you. What are you talking about? And so it happens. He betrays Jesus three times. And what's his response? You know, he, he, he weeps bitterly, is what it says. He weeps bitterly. Now, Peter gets a little bit of a, a bad rap uh, for denying Jesus three times here, but let's give Peter some credit here. He immediately recognizes his sin. He immediately has this sorrowful regret. He immediately is mourning. And so he immediately starts weeping. For a guy who's as tough and outspoken as Peter was to cry... Man, that's not a small thing. That is not a small thing. He wasn't weeping bitterly about the consequences of his sin. He's weeping about the fact that he did it. He didn't have any real consequences necessarily other than to say, hey, you know, Peter, you're not where you should be. He didn't lose his salvation. He didn't lose his place as, you know, one of the disciples or anything like that. He didn't lose any earthly possessions. So there were no material consequences. But there was a sin sitting there between him and God, and he is feeling regret. So he wept about the sin itself, not the consequences of his sin. James isn't telling us to weep about the consequences of our sin. There are consequences to sin. He's telling us that if there's sin in our lives, there should be strong, heartfelt conviction. Where there's strong conviction, there's mourning. Where there's mourning, there should be weeping. Some of you may notice that whenever I talk about how Jesus... Here it goes. Whenever I talk about how Jesus saved me, I get choked up. And sometimes I have to stop while I'm up here and kind of, you know, take a breath and, you know, get my mind someplace else so that I, you know, so that I don't just, like, totally have a meltdown up here. I, I sometimes am ready to weep. I'm on the verge of weeping when I think about what Jesus did to save me. It's kind of a strange feeling because, you know, part of me still... You know, part of it is, you know, that there's a part of me that still deeply regrets the years that, uh, that I, I spent as a rebellious sheep just wandering away from the good shepherd. And part of me wants to weep with tears of joy because he came and saved me. Because of what he did for me. So these three terms, lament or be miserable or have sorrowful regret, mourn and weep, they all describe the daily struggle that we have in our walk with, the God, with God, with the Lord. There's a death that has to take place because of sin. 
The penalty of sin is death. And that requires from us a denial of self, taking up our cross, and following Jesus, which is really, really hard to do. It's a daily struggle. And one of the points that we've made through this study is that there are so few churches who talk about the importance of repentance because they don't want to offend people. But that's where it starts. It starts with turning away from your own selfishness, your own desires, and saying, God, I don't, I don't know why your ways are better than mine necessarily, or maybe you do, but I'm going to follow you anyway. I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you. That's what repentance means. That's where it all starts, and that's what has to be done if we're serious about surrendering it all to and for Jesus. So real quick, let's review the principles that we've uh, come to this far. Number one, submit to God. Number two, resist the devil. Number three, draw near to God. Number four, cleanse your hands. Number five, purify your hearts. Number six, lament your sin. Number seven, mourn for your sin. And number eight, weep for your sin. And by the way, with these three instructions that we've just talked about, don't do them James isn't saying you can only do them about your own sin. No, when you see it in the lives of somebody you love, if you see it taking place in a country that you love, it's okay to do those things on behalf of someone else or on behalf of the entire nation. So if you love this country as much as I do, and I, I love this country, this, this, the point of this series is not to say, boy, I hope God doesn't bless America. No, that's not the point. The point is, I hope God does bless America because I love America. But I lament and I mourn and I weep over her sins. So let's move on to the ninth imperative that James gives us. James chapter 4, verse 9, the second part of this verse says, Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Laughter. Here we find evidence that these are people who were not just becoming casual in their approach to sin. They're celebrating it. They're celebrating sin. And again, we aren't all that different today. American culture, American society isn't all that different today. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, we need to be absolutely clear and understand that James isn't saying that there isn't a time or place for laughing. He's not saying there's not a time or place for joy. He's not saying that we should maintain a constant state of stoicism. As if I would never feel joy. I'm above feeling joy. You see, back in the first century, there were two extremes. First, there were the hedonists. You guys are probably familiar with the term hedonism. For those of you who are under 20, hedonism, uh, just to explain it real quick to you guys, it, it means basically a pleasure, pursuing the, the pleasures of the flesh at all costs. Nothing was more important than living it up and doing whatever makes you feel happy, as if feeling happy is the greatest virtue. Now, you would think that I'm talking about America and Western culture or maybe the Oprah Winfrey show here, uh, but I'm talking about ancient people who believed that the pleasure of the flesh was the greatest good. Uh, Later, Roman emperors would be notorious for embracing a hedonistic philosophy of life, and historians, uh, at least in part, blame the fall of the Roman Empire on their hedonistic philosophy, just living it up, not caring about anything else but fleshly pleasure. 
So that was one extreme. At the other extreme, extreme were the Stoics. The Stoics believed that any pleasure was bad and that only the virtues, only intangible virtues were good. It was a philosophy that basically sought to rid the individual of emotions because when you get emotional, you make stupid mistakes. That was the foundation of their whole philosophy. If you, if you get emotional, you make mistakes because they believed that emotions were the driving force behind bad decisions. To an extent, they are probably true, although people who aren't too emotional still make bad decisions. But the result is that these people always appeared to be gloomy. Gloomy. They didn't want to appear joyful because joy is an emotion. And that might cause them to make a bad decision. So this is not the philosophy. Neither one of these things uh, are the philosophies that James is uh, asking us to embrace. He's not endorsing them. After all, the Bible instructs that Christians should be joyful at all times. We should be joyful. James isn't telling us to be at one extreme or the other because neither philosophy considers the most important element in whether you're feeling joy or mourning. And that is context. What James is condemning here is the context of their laughter, the context of their joy, the context of their celebration, and that was sin. Sin was the context. James is simply pointing out that there is no joy in godly conviction. There is no joy in sin. Now, if you know me, you know that I, I don't take a whole lot of things real seriously. I like to joke around all the time. Uh, you know, the more you get to know me, the more you'll see that. But there are two things that I do take extremely seriously and I, I don't joke about, and that is loyalty to God and loyalty to my family. I, I, I don't joke about those things. I don't pull any punches with those things. See, offending God is, is just it's serious business. It's serious business. It can't be laughed at. And so James is telling us that it should be mourned instead of laughed at. As individuals or as a nation, you know, we can't ask for God's blessing when we take this lackadaisical, humorous attitude about the things that offend God. And we can't stand by silently while others continue to laugh and celebrate the things that offend God. Guys, I have a question for you. If I were to stand uh, before you and your wife, and I'm sitting there and I am just making fun of your wife relentlessly, pointing out all of her shortcomings and laughing about it. How many of you guys would want to punch me in the face? Go ahead, raise your hands. I, I, I hope you guys would raise your hands, because if I were in your shoes, I'd be raising my hand. Uh, yeah, you'd say yes, because you'd be offended because she is offended, right? That doesn't mean that I, I would punch somebody in the face, but we have this instinct that dictates that we protect the dignity of those that we love. That's why you want to punch me in the face, because you have this instinct that wants to protect your wife's dignity, I hope. Yeah, you do. You do. It's in there somewhere, trust me. So with that in mind, how can we, either men or women, how can we stand by silently while people offend God? Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that the answer is to punch them in the face. Don't punch them in the face. That's not the solution. But there's, there's nothing wrong with letting somebody know, you know, you've offended me. You've offended me because you've offended God. And if they've offended God with their words or with their actions or with their attitudes, and if we take sin as seriously as James is telling us to, we should be offended on God's behalf when we see sin in somebody else's life. 
when we see sin being passed as legislation in our courts. John Calvin says this. He says, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. You know what? A whole lot of Christians in this country have remained silent about sin in our nation for way too long. We've just taken the, the casual approach, I'm not, I'm not going to get involved, and that's how I'll protest it. That's how, I, that's how I'll show my displeasure with it. You know, we've been taught that tolerance is the greatest virtue and that you can't love a person unless you also love all of their sinful actions. But here's, here's what we've got to do. We've got to love the sinner, of course. Jesus loves the sinner, but hate the sin. You've got to learn to make that distinction. And people will see that we can make that distinction. Judge, but don't judge hypocritically. Sin is no laughing matter. It should give us a sense of anguish. It should cause us to mourn. Not publicly. I'm not talking about, well, you know, they're getting ready to pass some legislation, so let's go stand outside the Capitol and and weep. (laughs) You can't force it like that. All you're trying to do is draw attention to your outward actions, and that's something that Jesus addressed with the Pharisees over and over again. So you don't do it publicly where people can be impressed. No, we're talking about an internal mourning with a purpose of bringing us to a point of complete and total submission to God. A somber, serious attitude about sin is going to flow out of a heart that has humbly submitted to him, resisted the devil, and drawn near to God. The person who laughs at sin, the person who celebrates sin unquestionably, remains distant from God. So if you find yourself or someone you know and love laughing about sin, check yourself first. Check your heart. What's going on in there? If, if you're finding joy in sin, what is going on in your heart? If God were to come down and open up your heart and mind and show it, lay it all out before you and show it to you, what would he say you need to clean this up about? What would he point out and say, it's time to clean this part up? Let's look at the final principle that James gives us in this passage. James chapter 4, verse 10. He says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. What we saw in the first lesson is that being humble is the principle, it's, it's the premise that serves as the foundation for this entire process of biblical reconciliation with God. Looking at this passage as a whole, we see that James uh, wrote back in chapter 4, verse 6, just a few verses back, he says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. So looking at this passage as a whole, we have humble up here and humble down here, and we've got all these principles in between. You might call that a sandwich. Humbling ourselves, that's how it's, that's how it's uh, formatted. That's how it's structured. Humbling ourselves means just coming to the point where we realize that God's mercy is our only hope. It's recognizing how desperate, desperately desperate we are for his mercy. It's the place where we clearly see that he's God, we're not, and our response is obedience, willful Submission. The point of humility and the outcome of going through the steps of biblical reconciliation with God is that God will exalt you. That's the whole point of all of this. He will, will, will He exalt a nation that turns from its wicked ways and humbly comes to Him on His terms? Will He 
exalt a person who turns from their ways and comes to him in willful submission? Yeah, of course, both times. Absolutely. Absolutely. Will his blessings flow out on a land that does that? Absolutely. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever hum- humbles himself shall be exalted. So the early church, the first century church, turned this into something of a creed. This, this particular thing that Jesus said, man, they, they remembered that, and they turned it into something of a creed. And so James is reciting it here. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you, or in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And Peter recited it as well with one very, one very significant addition. He said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. See, they're, they're all saying the same thing. It was kind of a, a, an early creed that they embraced, because they recognized, man, this is an important step. Being humble is really important. See, when we humble ourselves, we might not feel very exalted. Notice that Peter says, he may exalt you at the proper time. I've got a good friend, uh, somebody who listens to my podcasts in, uh, in Arizona, and he became a Christian a few years ago, and as he caught fire for the Lord, and I mean, he really did, he really caught fire for the Lord, and his, his lifestyle of, uh, you know, of, of sinning, totally changed, everything totally changed. He became this humble guy. And he's a guy, you know, he's got both ears pierced, he's got tattoos. You look at some of his earlier pictures, man, I wouldn't want to meet this guy on the street and, and look at him funny or, you know, anything like that. No, he became a Christian after all these years and all these years of being married, and his wife couldn't stand the new him. And so she filed for divorce, and it went through a few months ago. Did he feel exalted? No, I'm positive that he did not. He didn't feel exalted. But Peter tells us that God knows the time to exalt you when you humble yourself before him. It might not be right away. It might be years. But that's trusting in God. It's trusting in a God that knows the past, present, and future, and he sees it all. He has the power to do it, and he knows when the proper time is. Sometimes it's right away, and sometimes... Sometimes the enemy is going to throw consequences in your path that first must be overcome. Humbling ourselves may bring scorn. It might bring shame. It might bring mocking. But God will exalt you for your humility at the proper time. Humbling ourselves is difficult because our culture places a high value on things like independence and self-reliance. When was the last time you turned on the TV and saw a commercial that was aiming at somebody who was totally reliant on everybody else? You know, can you imagine a car commercial for, you know, this big tough truck? You know, you got this burly voice in the background saying, you depend on other people. You rely on someone else like a, like a real man does. You know, no, they, they need to entice you with things like, you're a rugged man. You're a manly man. You're your own man. You don't need anyone. And so, see, we're constantly being bombarded with messages like that in our culture that value, place an emphasis, a huge emphasis on independence and self-reliance. And all of this just reinforces and adds to our, nat- our natural fleshly inclination toward being self-centered. But if we want God to lift us up, if we want him to exalt us, we have to constantly and intentionally work against that self-centered nature. 
that independent, self-reliant ideology, we have to humble ourselves. Now, if we, now as we close out this, uh, this series on getting America straight with God, I want us to understand that the solution to our nation's spiritual shortcomings starts right here. It starts with us, God's people. It starts with us living a life that's worthy of our calling. It starts with us being obedient and being light in the darkness. And don't compare yourself to other people. Don't, don't com- I mean, it, it's great to be in a, in a network. We want to be in a network of other people. But don't, don't look at somebody else and say, you know, I'm, whatever he does, I'm going to do exactly what he does. Because there will be times when everyone sins. There will be times when people let you down. There will be times when people fail. They'll disappoint you. Don't compare yourself to others because it, it only leads to spiritual death. Comparing yourself to others, if it does not uh, make you prideful, it'll discourage you and lead you down the path of sin. Instead of comparing yourself to others, just compare yourself to Jesus. Get your heart straight with God. It's, be- it's ultimately between you and him, your obedience to him. Instead of comparing yourself to others, compare yourself to Christ. He's the, only, uh, he's the one and only standard that we should strive toward. So with that said, you know, our nation doesn't need us to be pointing fingers and shame on you as much as it needs us to be serving and living examples of genuine, authentic faith and repentance. Resist the temptation to be your own ultimate authority. Resist the temptation to make God your co-pilot. You guys ever see that sticker? I've known some good Christian people who had that sticker. He's not the co-pilot. He is the pilot. He's first in command. He calls the shots. And the shots that he calls are recorded in Scripture, in the Bible. The Bible contains everything that we need to know about him, his standards, his ways, what offends him. It hasn't changed. The things that offend him haven't changed. Yield to those things humbly, willfully, and eagerly. Eagerly. Lives need to be transformed if our country wants to see laws transformed. Transformed laws come out of transformed lives. Our nation will not overcome the problem of moral bankruptcy until we see a sweeping renewal of godly humility. And until that happens, we're in no position to expect or demand God's blessing on our nation. So let us ask that God would pour heartfelt conviction on us first, because it starts here for our country, that we would desire more than ever to represent Christ as light in the darkness by abiding in Jesus. By abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit as a result of our obedience to him. Let your light shine in the darkness so that everybody can see it. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you are a God who sought reconciliation with us. We didn't deserve it. We know that your mercy was our only hope. And so you sent Jesus to pay the price of the sin that we had committed. God, we know that individually we need you. We need your strength in the war against sin. And God, as a nation, we need the same thing. So Lord, we don't pray 
for your wrath on this nation. Lord, what we pray for is your blessing on this nation in the form of sweeping revival and spiritual regeneration. God, we pray that your word would continue to be proclaimed in this country and that it would start with repentance, God. The people would start turning from their sins and start recognizing that you are sovereign. You are the authority. You're the boss. And that our response as a nation, God, would be willful submission. That we would choose your ways. That we would see things the way you see things. That we would hate sin as much as you hate sin. God, make us a people who shine like light in the darkness. Make us that city on the hill in order that the world can see your goodness and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper. in the springtime, open and bloom.